It's lovely to be here. Wonderful to see you all. It's good to worship God together, isn't it? Uh, thank you for that. that big, I'm not really used to these big introductions. Basically, I have the glorious privilege which God has given me to be his servant working with Muslims, which I've done all my adult life. And it's a wonderful time in history to be doing that. And you know, God is calling more and more people into that. Not just people who specialize and go off, but ordinary folk. Uh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate how Golden Hills has partnered with myself and my family uh, over the last, I'm not sure how many years it is, 16, 17 years since uh, first got involved in Chad. And it's really wonderful to be with you this morning. It is still morning. Yes, it is still morning. Um, you've been going through the book of Acts uh, in, your, in the, the messages with the theme of we are sent or you are sent. We are sent, isn't it? We are sent. And um, taking up that theme, I'm moving back to John's Gospel where Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. We are sent in the same way Jesus is. And we're going to look together an account in uh, John chapter 4, a very well-known story. Uh, I hesitate to use the word story because we tend to associate it with things made up. This is an account of something that happened. If we are sent as Jesus was sent, we can learn from the way he did things. And that's how we're sort of going to look at this. So are we set up? Here we go. Yeah. So in John chapter 4. Now, he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. I've just skipped a verse to bring this out. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. We just need to fill in a little bit of background. As with the book of Acts, you've got all these towns and places. You have your Bible stories about Jesus, where he does all his miracles and stuff. A lot of it's in Galilee, and Galilee's in the north. And then, of course, he went down to Jerusalem, uh, and that's where he died and rose again. And between the two, there's this block of land called Samaria. And uh, originally, it was part of uh, historic Israel, and there was the kingdom of Israel there. And back in the day, the Assyrians invaded, took all the people away, and put somebody else there. And uh, a community developed that sort of mixed up God-given Jewish religion with um, other stuff. And the faithful Jews and the Samaritan guys, they really didn't get on. And the really faithful people who wanted to please God in everything, they would, when going from Jerusalem to Galilee, they'd head north, they'd get to the border, they'd turn right, they'd cross the river, they'd go into pagan Gentile territory, walk up the river, and then turn left and completely bypass Samaria. It was the place you didn't go. But Jesus had to go. We're not told why he had to go, but he knew he had to go. And he came into Samaria, and he came to this well, and it says it was the sixth hour. Um, it was the sixth hour, it was about noon. Um, six hours from sunset, sunrise. And he and his disciples had been walking on this journey. It's going to take several days. And you just imagine... You're walking and the sun comes up and you're still walking and it's hot and it's dusty and the sun gets higher and higher. They've been on the road all day, get to the middle of the day, and he stops to rest. God became human and lived amongst us and Jesus felt what we feel. 
Therefore, we have some idea what he feels, he felt. We often don't take this on board sufficiently. Jesus felt human weakness. He felt tired. His feet were sore. He had sweat on his face. He had dust uh, between his toes. And he had been walking for six hours. And he sat down. He needed to rest. You know what it's like to feel weary? Well, so does Jesus. And he just wanted to sit down and be quiet. And I find this interesting. The disciples had gone off into town. There's next to this village, really, quite a small place. They'd gone to go and get some food for them to eat. Now, how many guys do you send to get some sandwiches? <laughs> he sent all of them. <laughs> and, yeah, he's master and disciple. He would decide how many go, and he sent them all. And I'm speculating here, but you look elsewhere where Jesus is walking with his disciples, and it tells us something about what was going on. And more often than not, they're arguing, they're bickering, they're, they're talking nonsense. And there's more than one occasion Jesus says, how long do I have to put up with you guys? I mean, he said it in love. But he, they, they taxed him. They taxed his patience. And there's Jesus sitting on his own because he wanted to be on it. He had a bit of respite. The guys are going off to get the sandwiches. I'm going to sit down, have a bit of peace and quiet before I have to walk with these guys a bit more. So have you got the mood? Have you got the feel? In those sort of situations, you just want to zone out. That's the context. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus sees this woman coming out to the well. It's midday, it's noon. And it, you don't need supernatural wisdom to understand what's happening. Um, he read the situation. You see, we, I assume, all live in homes where water comes through the pipes. You do not have to get up in the morning and walk out to a well and carry your supply of water back to your house. But if you're in that kind of situation, you don't say, oh, look, we run out of some water. Just, just nip outside and get some to the well. No, you organize your life around it. And what happens there at that time, as happens in many parts of the world, including Chad, um, sun starts coming up, the women of the house get moving, and some of the women from the household go out to the well outside of the town with all the other women, and that's the time they socialize and, and, and chat. It's like the mums at the school gate, and they get their water, and water is heavy, and then you've got to carry it. And you do it in the cool of the day. You do it to get set up for the day. You need it for drinking. You need it for cooking. You need it for washing yourself. You need it for washing your baby. You need it for washing your clothes. You need water for a household to function, and you get your water first thing in the day. Or, if you run out during the day, you get it in the evening. But you do not allow yourself to get in a situation where you have to pop out at just any time. It's part of your routine. It's fundamental to how you organize your day. And here is a woman coming to get water at midday, in the heat, on her own. That was intentional. He read the situation. This is a needy woman. This is somebody who does not want to be with her neighbors. This is somebody who is disaffected. This is somebody who is marginalized. This is somebody who is broken. She's coming to get her water when she's least likely to meet someone. So she wants to be on her own too. And out she comes. And Jesus initiates something. Will you give me a drink? And she's shocked. She's surprised. 
because that's not a normal thing to do. He knows she wants to be on her own, and yet he's talked to her anyway. That's not very polite, is it? And there's this other thing. A respectable man did not just accost a strange woman he didn't know. He just didn't do that in that culture, as is true in many parts of the world. Even more so for the woman, you do not just talk to some strange man. She can tell from his clothes that he's Jewish and not a Samaritan. What's he, what's he doing even talking to her? All sorts of invisible lines are being crossed here. And then you get this Jew-Samaritan thing. Samaritan, Jews and Samaritans do not have dealings with each other. When the Jews want to insult someone, they call someone a Samaritan. They would not drink out of the same vessels. So what's he doing asking for a drink? He's just breaking all sorts of, not just rules, but, but lines that, that control people's behavior. Jesus initiated something. And she was surprised. Why are you asking for a drink? What's going on? She, he caught her off guard. Now, this thing with the Samaritans, it, it wasn't just, you know, a sort of a little rivalry. The Samaritans uh, were people who worshipped God. They believed in God. They were passionate about God. They, they had the books of Moses, but they worshipped differently. And, you know, you read the Old Testament. It's all, this is how you worship. This is what you must do. You do it wrong, it doesn't count. And these guys did it differently. So that automatically gets a whole emotional tension going. They say they're following Moses, and yet they do it all different. They rejected the other scriptures. They rejected David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they didn't worship in the temple. Uh, and all these things that were so precious and important to faithful Jewish believers, the Samaritans said, nope, it's all wrong. We don't do that. And they claimed to have the true religion. They claimed to be the real descendants of Abraham. And of course, the Jews claimed the same thing. So this is what they have in common. They both claim to be the only one, and that leads to conflict and tension. That's not going to work, is it? So there was real hostility, Samaritans to Jews, Jews to Samaritans. There's a place in Mark's Gospel where James and John, followers of Jesus, people learning his teaching, say, can we call down fire on the Samaritan village and destroy them? Please, Lord, let's do it. That's the kind of chemistry that's in this relationship. And you go through the accounts in the Gospels, Jesus again and again meeting Samaritans. He did not he did not respond in that way. He did not behave as the rest of his culture did. Something I really appreciate looking into these materials is that the Samaritans are a picture for us of Muslims. So Samaritan Jew, Muslim Christian, there's all this same kind of dynamic going on. As I say, I thank God that he's called me into his service to reach Muslims for Christ. And God is doing exciting things. But we see this chemistry that really builds tensions and builds invisible lines and, and uh, creates problems in communication. Things that are not just intellectual, but emotional and deep. Um, Muslims say we believe in the one true God, the creator of all things, the, the judge of all men, the giver of laws, the sender of the prophets, the one from whom scriptures come. That's their claim. We occupy the same ground. But they worship differently. Boy, do they worship differently. And we think, well, that's not the way to worship. And they look at us and say, that's not the way to worship. They affirm that God sent scriptures, but they reject the ones we've got. It's all been changed. You've got false books and all the rest of it. That, that, that doesn't tend to give us warm, fuzzy feelings, does it? When your precious scripture is just, oh, that's wrong. It's been changed. 
There's so much, actually, the foundation of Islam is a rejection of the gospel. It's an alternative religion to replace the gospel. That's what it's intended for. And there's a real hostility there. And Muslims and Christians both claim to have the true message of God for all nations. So because we have that in common, there is a real incompatibility which goes way beyond taste and style. It gets really to the things that matter to us. And the Jews and the Samaritans had the same thing. We want to learn from the example of Jesus. Let's see how Jesus dealt with Samaritans. Now, in this particular moment, here he is. He finds himself with the Samaritan. He had good reasons to say nothing. He was weary. I mean, he, he was not in the mood. Well, you're not, are you? When you are, you are tired, you've had a, maybe a stressful morning, you sit down, you're not in the mood for interacting with people. That's just human. That's where he was at that moment. Um, the woman who was there, she didn't want to talk either. She was occupying the same space, but she really wanted to mind her own business. Silence was perfectly normal between Samaritans and Jews because the alternative nearly always led to trouble. So here's your situation. There's all these invisible lines. You've got, she's there. The normal thing, you just ignore each other. You ever been in that situation with a Muslim, with a Bin Laden lookalike? Or some woman veiled up to the eyes. They are in a lift, in an elevator together. Doesn't necessarily encourage natural communication, does it? So what did Jesus do? Hang on. What did Jesus do? He said, will you give me a drink? And she said, to paraphrase, why are you asking me for a drink? She was surprised. She responded, but... She was puzzled. And he came back with this. Let's just read this, together. read this carefully. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Except he said it full speed. And that's quite a mouthful. There's a reason people don't use this, this as a memory verse. It's complicated. Well, it is. It's complicated. You have to think about it. Well, what's, what's, what's he saying? Who's doing what? He knew she would not get this first time. I and mean, there she is. She's just puzzled at this weird Jewish guy that's asking for a drink of water when actually they, Jews never drink water that the Samaritans have handled. You know, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. What's he playing at? And he comes out with this complicated thing. What did he do that for? So, why did he say that? Well, first of all, he initiated something because he saw her need. Her need was pretty evident, but he saw it, and he did not continue to zone out. You can see the need, but he also felt that need, compassion. He cared. And then this third ingredient. He knew that he had what she needed. So he initiated something. He said something she wasn't going to understand. That wasn't a problem. People sometimes say Jesus was a, the wonderful, perfect communicator. He often said things people didn't understand. And that wasn't a problem for him because it was just part of a process and he was, he was getting there. Sometimes we're afraid of saying things people won't understand. So let's go on. Her reply was not encouraging. Now, imagine this as an equivalent. You know, there you are. You find yourself unexpectedly closeted with some Muslim guy or Muslim girl, and you're having a conversation. Her reply was not encouraging. Sir, said the woman, 
You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I mean, I don't think that translation does it justice because there's no real emotional content to it. Um, the way I would, if it was a British equivalent, this is what would happen. The hands would go on the hips. <laughs> you haven't got a bucket. What do you mean you're going to give me water? You haven't got a bucket. You're empty-handed. The well's deep. Where's your rope? What do you mean you're going to give me water? What are you, stupid? Now, the what are you stupid is hidden behind the words, but... I mean, he's got a curiosity going. He says, you know, effectively, can I have a drink? He says, what? He says, I'm going to give you a drink. What? You know, I mean, he's intentionally saying things that don't make... You haven't even got a bucket. What is this crazy guy doing? And if you think I'm taking liberties there, and that's really not all in there. Actually, the next paragraph proves it, because this is a slap in the face. Remember, these are Samaritans. They're mixed up people. They're not proper believers. Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, and also, as also did his sons and his flocks and herds? Are you greater than who? Our father, Jacob? What, the, the, the founder of the that the father of the Jewish race, his other name was Israel, and she, the Samaritan, is where our father Jacob, who gave us this well, he gave it to his sons. And who were the descendants of Jacob? It's the Jews, isn't it? So the standard answer would have been, what are you talking about, woman? We are the proper descendants of Jacob. You're not. You're, you're all mixed up. You're hybrid. You're mongrels. We're the real people. We are the, the heart. We are the people who carry blessing to the world. We are God's people. You are not. That's what it invited as a response. It was a red rag for a bull. Our father Jacob. Yeah, that was a verbal slap in the face. And you know, Jesus let it go, didn't argue. He wasn't there to argue. But he comes back with something else. Everyone who drinks from this well will get thirsty again. Now, that's easy to understand. I mean, that is that's common sense. That's speaking at a level she's going to get straight away. We'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that is a selling point. I don't know what he means, but it sounds good. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he said something that had a little, and I think there's two things. First, he was saying something that was a little bit more intriguing, and it was drawing her out, but also he did not get angry. He continued to speak to her as an intelligent human being. He intended, he continued to, to address thirst and need and say, I can give you something that will transform you. And she's still not sure what it's about, but she's beginning to listen intentionally. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to this well. And if you know the rest of the passage, he then makes it more personal. She retreats into another theological problem. He doesn't get bogged down in that. And he speaks of the Spirit, and he goes on. And in the end, this woman doesn't get her water out the well. She goes back into the town. She speaks to these neighbors she's avoiding. She says, you need to come and hear this guy, because I think this guy is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And the whole town comes out. And eventually they say, we 
don't just believe in him because of your testimony, but because we have heard ourselves. And what a cool moment. There was no opportunity. You know, there, was a, there were two people together, but normally that was not an opportunity to say anything. And Jesus turned a non-opportunity into an opportunity. So, why don't we do that? I mean, maybe, maybe there's a whole bunch of you that could come up and, and say, oh, I did this too. I don't know, maybe, maybe you've got some great people. But so many of us Christians, I include myself, we look at that and think, well, that was so, how did he do that? It was such an unpromising moment, and yet he turned it around. One of the reasons we don't do that is all these little fears we have knocking around inside our hearts. Fear of starting something. Fear of giving offense. I mean, giving offense isn't good. We don't want to give offense. But fear of giving offense can be paralyzing. I'm not saying go out there and be rude to people, but fear of giving offense can become a controller. And so we never actually say what we know we need to say. Fear of getting out of our depth. What happens if, you know, you know I know how to say this, but what, what's the next step? What's the step after that? How will I manage when it gets complicated? And that fear of questions are difficult questions. I mean, I don't know why any of us go around with this conceit that we ought to have the answer to everything. Not having the answer to everything is actually pretty normal for anybody. So what are you afraid of being asked? Oh, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find somebody who does, and it's not a difficult one. But that fear, looking a bit dumb, I mean, Jesus made himself look dumb. I'll give you water. You haven't got a bucket. What are you talking about? Silly man. So the Muslims are like our Samaritans. That same chemistry of tension is there. There's that, the thing we have in common is the thing that sets us against each other. We both claim to be the messengers of the one true God. Whether, whether, we're, whether they're faithful Muslims or, or careless Muslims, whether we are zealous Christians or not so zealous Christians, you still have that basic incompatibility that's there. And there's all these tensions that get into politics and everything else. And... Um, there are well-rehearsed arguments that people go through. A lot of them, actually, neither side really cares about. But you get into these well-rehearsed arguments that control the, the dialogue, and, and you end up not really sharing good news. And we, being fallible, mixed-up human beings we are, we get it all mixed up. We mix up the kingdom of God with politics and with history and love of nation and patriotism. It's good to love your nation. But actually, the kingdom of God is the higher thing. All the nations will pass away. History is full of nations that have, have been there and have gone. You know, the nations are all secondary. The kingdom of God is primary. The kingdom of God lasts forever, ever. We should be living and speaking according to the agenda of the, king of God, of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not get sucked into all the usual rubbish that went on between Jews and Samaritans. He went to the heart. He was looking, how do I bring these people to receive the living water that will transform them. That's his priority. And we so often get it mixed up. Stops us speaking clearly. So, let's all be like Jesus. Is that an unfair suggestion? I mean, he's just so cool at the well. Is it unreasonable just to say, well, let's all do that? Because Jesus is kind of special. But, you know, Jesus left aside all his supernatural abilities, received the Spirit and operated as we are invited to, enabled by the Holy Spirit, is given to believers. Uh, he left aside his, his Godhead to do that. So 
It's all right for Jesus. He's got lots of advantages, but can we really do the same? Now, let's just bear with me with a little foolishness. Just imagine that this week God is going to put you in a situation where you're with, I don't know, a Bin Laden lookalike or some woman all veiled up or some other person who's clearly defined as Muslim, and there you are, you're in the same space. Maybe in a grocery line or maybe uh, on public transport. Um, probably not in Bart, it's too noisy. But, you know, you're, you're somewhere where you could have a conversation. And you're sitting there, am I going to say anything? What am I going to say? Yeah, God might put you there. Please, God, don't put me there. Well, sorry. God's going to put you there. Would it help if Jesus sidled up beside you and whispered in your ear, okay, this is the moment. Are you ready? This is what you should say first. And if they say that, this is what you say. Would that help? Would you like that? Yeah? Those who are awake said yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not siesta time yet. So that would help, wouldn't it? Now, actually, I've got some good news for you. Sort of good news. Jesus said, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Oh, we love that, don't we? We love it when we're in trouble. We love it when we're bereaved. We quote it when we're praying. We, we, we draw on it when we're worshipping. He is with us. But actually, the context of, context of that promise is go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. Surely I am with you. The two are linked. And because he is God, because he's ascended, he is present everywhere, but he is with us when we are doing what he called us to do, when we are following his words. You can, you know, go off tonight to a bar and get, get drunk on something, and he's present, but he's not with you. You can go off into all kinds of sin and debauchery and all the rest of it. He is present, but he is not with you. But when you step out on his promises, when you obey his word, when you speak for him, he is with you. That is his promise. When you find yourself in that unexpected place, and there you are, parked with someone, you think, what am I going to say? He is with you. That's the promise. How about this one? Some missing words. Um, we're not going to do this children's style. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I did once with this particular verse, and a retired pastor got it wrong. So we won't do that. You will be my witnesses. You've been talking about this in your sermons for, for months. The missing bit is... I'll get, get it right. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit is not a battery pack. He's not an energy source. He's not a resource or an accoutrement. It's the living presence of God with us, specifically to enable us to speak and to endure and to be gracious and to be what we need to, to put into practice the will of God. So actually we have this promise. We will be his witnesses because he is with us. So we don't need Jesus to walk up behind us and whisper in our ear. He's already laid that on. So that is, that is good news if you really want to do it, and it's bad news if you're looking for a way out. And we need to sort out the attitudes of our heart of what we accept as good news and what we accept as bad news, and we wrestle that with the Father, and he's patient with us because he's patient with his children, and praise the Lord. So, Jesus and us. Um... Hang on, did I skip something? Yeah, that's right. That little comparison. Jesus saw her need. There are so many reasons we do not see people's need. 
And some of those reasons is, is we're just busy and we're doing what we ought to do and all the rest of it, but somehow we do it in such a way that we don't want to see other people's need. We zone it out, we, whatever we do. Some people have a more natural ability to recognize, but even then you can switch it off. Jesus saw her need. And then, stage two, he cared. He had compassion. Um, again, that's something you can switch off, and we do. You know, because we feel we're under pressure, we've got all these things to do. We don't want to get drawn into things. And we need to hold that before the Lord and say, Lord, am I, am I switching off things that you want to switch on? Because in the end, we are not our own, we are his. And this, I believe, is so important. He knew that he had what she needed. And so many Christians, because of the way we divide up our thoughts and our, our feelings, and we do not realize this. We have what other people need. We have what Muslims are looking for. Well, what are they looking for? Take over the world. No, we want to take over the world as well, but no, that's not it. They want to be accepted by God. They want to be clean. They want to have a clear conscience. They want to, do what, they want to find out what's right and, and, and sort out all their, their internal contradictions. They want peace. In their own terms, they don't really understand what God wants for them, but there are so many things they want that we have. We have them in Christ. Security, eternal security. Peace of God. To be accepted. To, be, to know the love of God. I mean, they, know, they need that, and many of them will say, well, you can never know that you're loved by God. So they reconcile themselves to not having that. But in their human hearts, they need the love of God. They were created for that. They were created to worship and love him because they were created like us. We have what we need, what they need. But we often don't know that we have what they need. That somehow, we, we just don't think that way. We don't get it. We just see difference. We have what they need. Do we know it? Do we live in that awareness? Of course, it applies to other guys, not just Muslims. But for us Christians, to be aware of that. We think we need to know stuff. Well, Muslims, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah, well, you can find out stuff. That's not difficult. That's the easy bit. And there are courses that are run in the church. Talk to Pastor Brian about it. There are books. There's stuff online. Actually, the, the, the bits and pieces you need to know to relate to Muslims, it's all available. It's all been done before. That's easy. If you recognize that God is going to get you involved with Muslims, then sort that out. No problem. We need to be confident in Christ. That's the big thing. That's where we fail. And that's where he wants to meet us. He wants us to be confident in him, confident in our message. Um, now, I hope this doesn't sound all too theoretical and something that's going to be relevant primarily to those people you pray for out in Chad a long way away because God in these days is bringing Muslims into places where Christians live and worship. It's all over the world. It's happening, happening in my country, happening in your country. And we're going to look, watch a little YouTube clip that was put together by some American Christians somewhere. It's a message for their fellow citizens. Uh, played this in the last service, and one person did take offense at it. Well, it's, it, it, it's uh, anyway, it's, it's your guys that are saying this. I, don't, I think it's wonderful. It's, it's looking at the Word of God. So are you ready to run that? Thank you. The world is in crisis. The number of people forcibly displaced by war, conflict, or persecution recently reached a record high of 60 million. That includes over 15 million refugees. 
all over the world, people are migrating in search of a better life for themselves and for their children. The result is huge population shifts. As of last year, 14% of America's population was foreign-born. It's estimated that over 42% of Sydney, Australia's population is foreign-born. Our demographic landscape is changing dramatically, and we can easily allow the multitude of cultural voices, from political parties to media outlets, drive the way we feel about the world moving from all nations to all nations. As believers, though, the only outside voice we should care about is God's. So what does the Bible say about God's heart for the foreigner? Depending on your Bible translation, you'll see the words aliens, sojourners, foreigners, and strangers over 100 times in Scripture. In Deuteronomy alone, God commands His people to love the foreigner, use tithes to bless the foreigners, assemble with foreigners to listen to God's word, invite foreigners to holidays and feasts, and to take care of the physical needs of foreigners. Why would God issue such commands? Again, Deuteronomy makes it clear. Because the Israelites were once foreigners in Egypt. Because the Israelites were slaves and God redeemed them. And, ultimately, so that others could learn to fear the Lord and follow God. God's instructions on this matter go far beyond Deuteronomy, though. Think about the story of Ruth. Ruth was a foreigner from Moab who married a Jewish man who died, leaving her a widow. Culturally, Ruth should have returned to her native land to be reunited with her own family and her own people. Indeed, Naomi, her mother-in-law, encourages her to do just that. But Ruth won't leave. She had been shown so much love and kindness by Naomi that she proclaimed, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Ruth decided to forsake the beliefs of her own people in order to follow the one true God of Israel. Imagine what could happen if Christians all over the world welcomed, loved, and showed hospitality to the refugees, immigrants, and international students flooding into our countries. We could have a great harvest of people saying, I want your people to be my people and your God to be my God. God's concern for the foreigner continues into the New Testament. Which commandments did Jesus proclaim as the greatest? Yep, love God and love your neighbor. He goes on to explain that your neighbor is not the person you expect, but the Samaritan, the foreigner, the one not like you, the one you would normally avoid. Jesus didn't just teach God's love for the foreigner, he demonstrated it by healing Gentile demoniacs, engaging in a spiritual debate with a Samaritan woman at a well, praising the faith of a Roman centurion, and celebrating the Gentile widow from Zarephath who fed Elijah. These were all foreigners, outcasts, strangers. In Acts chapter 2, who were the first people to hear the wonders of God in their own languages at Pentecost? It was the foreigners dwelling in Jerusalem. That's right, the first people to respond to the gospel when the Holy Spirit showed up were the nations living among the Jews. Paul makes God's intentions clear in his sermon at the Areopagus, where he proclaims, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What if we took that message to heart? What if the movement of peoples all over the world is not something to fear, 
What if the influx of immigrants, refugees, and international students is in fact a blessing, an opportunity orchestrated by God in order to fulfill the Great Commission? Historically, missions has been focused on leaving your context and going out to reach the nations, and that must continue. But perhaps welcoming is just as strategic in the mission for God to be glorified among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And remember, according to Ephesians 2, we were all strangers and foreigners, even enemies to the kingdom, before Jesus made a way for us to be citizens, children, and heirs. Pray, give, go, welcome. Where is God calling you? I, I like the way that that clip really sort of digs into Scripture, and if anyone has an issue with it, well, go back into the Scripture, have a look. I mean, before God, you say, okay, God, what, what, how should I see these things? For me, I worked for 30 years in Chad, and God has called me now to engage with British Christians to help them um, relate to Muslims, bring Muslims to Christ, disciple Muslims. And the old boundaries have been moved around. You know, the mission field is being moved. And in my organization, WEC, uh, every traditional mission field is now, in a, is now has, the, um, has a mandate, as it were, to become a sending area. And people are being sent from places that were once mission fields. But every place that used to send is also becoming a mission field because God is just moving things around. And um, I am now engaged in, in Britain with helping Christians who are so used to saying, go, and do, go to the mission field over there. And the mission field has turned up on their doorstep. And we've got, we've got Pakistanis and Syrians and Afghans and Kurds. My colleague, Patrick Johnston, author of Operation World, he's going around at the moment saying, look, you think this current crisis is over. We're going to have 100 years of this. There are all these countries waiting to explode. We are going to get so many people moving around the planet. Get ready. God is bringing people to you. And uh, yesterday I had a wonderful time. I met um, a Filipino grandmother who lives uh, in Sunnyvale, and she told us this story of how she went to the bank. Just an ordinary, I've been talking about doing ordinary things. You go to the bank, and she was in the room with the teller. She saw she had an Arabic name. She got talking. They made friends. The woman wanted a Bible. The Filipino grandmother came back with a Bible, and they sat there in her office, side by side, reading the Bible together. And she said, aren't you supposed to be getting on with your work? You know, weren't you a boss? Because never mind that. This is the word of God. These things are happening in banks and shops and hospitals and schools and how cool it is when God gives you the opportunity to share his word and living water with Muslim people with all their background and heritage and issues and needs and it's happening. And as Brian said at the beginning, the Great Commission concerns us all. God wants us all on board and he will involve us. Amen? So, to close, therefore, what should we do? Do we copy Jesus or follow his example? Do we say, right, I'm going to go around asking people for water. That misses the point. <laughs> Jesus didn't ask anybody else for water. Following his example is looking at situations, listening to his input and guidance, show me what to do, and asking for the opportunities. He didn't need to ask for opportunities. We do, because we're a little bit more fallible. And we say, come on, Lord, uh, you know how reluctant I am. Give me the opportunities. Help me recognize them. Ask for eyes to see. 
because we so train ourselves to screen things out. Lord, let me see. Asking for compassion. It's a dangerous thing because when compassion wells up, you have to do something. And that's why we turn our compassion off a lot of the time. We don't know where it's going to go or where it's going to take us. But if you're going to walk with the Lord, then you trust Him to handle all of that. He doesn't send us off and say, well, He didn't do very well there. He goes with us. And it may get messy. We like things to be neat and orderly, don't we? Life is mis- Real life, spiritual life, is always a little bit untidy. There's unexpected things. Ask the Lord for opportunities, for compassion, for eyes to see. And find stuff out. There is a bit of stuff that it's good to know. It's available. That's easy. Main thing, be confident in Christ. Does Christ want you to be confident in Him? Yes, He does. So you're working, you, you have a common interest with Him. So Lord, I want to be more confident in You. Teach me. Let's get this Word rooted in my heart. Let's get um, speaking and trusting Him in us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Is the Lord speaking to you? That's a a serious question. Answer that question to yourself. Is God speaking to you in some way? I I don't know what he's saying to you because we're all in different situations and I don't know specifically how he wants you to respond. But take a moment to make sure you know how you should respond. I think, what am I going to do about this? It may be very interesting, but what am I supposed to do? It'll be more than just writing in a journal. I'm sure of that. Now... One of the ways of fixing that, because you're about to break up and all chat to each other and talk about the kids and whatever else, and you lose that moment. Decide now that what God is saying to you is something, you say it to somebody else. You'll say, I think God is saying this to me. Share it with somebody else. Ask them to pray for you. Not necessarily right now, but just, you know, pray for me during the week. This is what I feel God is saying to me. And then you see that a person again next week or sometime, talk about it again. I mean, we need to help each other get a hold of what God is saying to us. That's why he puts us together. I'd just like to invite everybody to stand. Let's just all stand up and just be quiet before God and just, what is God saying to me? What do I have to do? How am I going to do it? What do I need to speak out to someone? This is what God is saying to me. And I'll just lead us in a time of prayer. Father God, you see everything in our hearts. There are no secrets before you. You know how mixed up and confused we are and how we muddle things up. And yet you're patient with us as you are with your children. Thank you, Lord, that you are so kind, you are wise, and you do take us out of our depth, but you hold us. So, Lord, I just pray for each one here that we'll hear you clearly, that we will follow through. Lord, I pray that you will show yourself faithful as we step out on your word. Thank you, Lord, that that there is no limit to your love. Thank you, Lord, for the resources you've given us in the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the support we get from each other. Lord, shape our lives. Make us as you would have us be. And shape this church, Lord, that it will be more and more fruitful as we go forward. In Jesus' name.